Hello and welcome to episode 277 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today I'm joined by Bethan and Mark from the Excellent Seeing Red Podcast. Hey guys, how are you both? Hello, we're really excited to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for having us along. This is um, an awesome treat for us. So <laughs> Yeah, we're, we, we're having a little day out, aren't we? <laughs> we are, yeah, really looking forward to, to recording. And I think Adam's show was the very first podcast, let alone True Crime, but the very first podcast I ever listened to. Uh, so it's all down to you, Adam. It is, and then you got me listening. So basically, Adam, you're the reason we're here today. Isn't that cheesy? You are blaming me for your show, aren't you? Uh, totally, yeah. Apologies. Apologies to everyone. Yeah. When it goes wrong. <laughs> yeah, when it all goes wrong, it's Adam's fault. And for those, there won't be very many, but for those people that maybe haven't listened to you in the past, do you want to just quickly tell us what your show's all about? Um, I, I'm happy to go, yeah. So uh, we're a weekly uh, true crime podcast, uh, basically in the same vein vein as Adam's, other, other than the fact we have two two of us. So uh, we take it in turns each week to discuss uh, a true crime from mostly from the UK, but from, from across the world too. And it's a, a crime that we find really fascinating and, and we kind of tell, tell each other and our audience a story and um, and yeah, just our thoughts on it. And we cover all sorts of different cases. So uh, lots of murders, as, as you would expect, unfortunately, but uh, some unsolved crimes. We've covered the Man- Manchester Canal pusher and debated our theories around that. We've covered the murder of Jill Dando. Um, I think we've done over 150 episodes, so there's uh, there's an awful lot of cases that we've covered. Great stuff. Sounds excellent. So if you haven't listened to Seeing Red, the podcast, go and check it out now. Okay, so let's get on with today's show. Firstly, um, a quick thank you to all my supporters at Patreon, but especially this week for all your lovely messages about my personal situation. These messages really touched me. Thank you so much. And a big thank you as always to the new members of this community. This week it's Paul Kerslake and to Xanthe Duncan, who has raised her level of support. Thank you all so much. I really appreciate this community. Mark and Bethan, just while I've got you here, um, we talk about the Patreon community. It's such a big thing for us, isn't it? It really is. It We always say, and we always sound a bit cheesy, but we always say it completely blows us away that people, if they're able to, choose to put their own hard-earned cash towards keeping these shows alive. And I don't know about you, but me and Mark have said, if it wasn't for that sort of support, we, we really don't know if we'd still be here, being able to take time out of our lives and our work schedules to record and and do things for the show. Yeah, I'm exactly the same. When I'm having a bad week, um, it's the support of that community in particular just really makes me want to go ahead and record the next week's episode. Yeah, completely agree. I love the Facebook group as well. Um, if any of your listeners who are patron supporters haven't joined, we have the specific uh, patron Facebook group for Paul's show, so the True Crime Enthusiast and then the UK True Crime Podcast and also Seeing Red. And we can have a bit of a chat in there about some of the patron episodes and some of the bonus content. And it's, it is, it's genuinely community is the right word. Yeah, so it's a really fun site, isn't it? Whereas the UK True Crime Facebook site, it's a bit more, what should we say? It's never dull, is it? <laughs> it's a little bit scary at times. <laughs> Tell me about it. It's okay. a beast. <laughs> it certainly is. All right, so... This episode or podcast is brought to you by All Plants Chef-Made Plant-Based Meals. I've just eaten the tofu pad thai, which was delicious. Mind you, the chicken katsu curry yesterday was pretty awesome too. 
And that's what I love about all plants. They deliver amazing, chef-made, ready, healthy meals direct to your door. I appreciate how busy you are, and it can be so hard to find time to cook, which is why you would love that these meals can be heated in as little as six minutes. And there's no shortage of choice with a growing menu of over 50 meals, not to mention the breakfast, desserts, sides and smoothies, which makes plant-based eating exciting. Whether you're a full-time vegan, a meat-free Mondayer, or just want to get a few more plants into your diet. Try it now and get £10 off your first two orders, save £20, with the code TRUECRIME20 at allplants.com. That is TRUECRIME20 at allplants.com. Fancy some free wine, Mark and Bethan? Obviously. Always. I certainly do. (laughs) I bet you do. (laughs) Me too. And as we head towards spring, it's the perfect time to try your new favourite wine club, Wine52, for free. All you need to do is go to www.wine52.com slash truecrime and cover the postage costs of £5.95 and you'll get three bottles delivered to you. I'm a huge fan and I know you will be too. Wine52 is a discovery club all about showcasing the very best wine from a different region each and every month. This month, the wine odyssey takes us to the stunning north of Portugal. There is a gorgeous white wine made from a blend of local grape varieties and a vibrant medium-bodied red. So no more getting any old wine from the garage at the last minute. Why don't you get some really good stuff for free? And whatever wine is your favourite, Wine52 can help. Choose either a mixture, red-only or white-only case. Also included is Gluck magazine, which delves into each region's wine culture and two tasty snacks as well. After your free case, you'll join the monthly wine club and there is no minimum commitment. You can't go wrong as it is so straightforward to pause or cancel at any time. So remember, that's wine52.com slash truecrime to claim your free case today. Okay, so let's set some context with our guest the month and year game. This is my favourite thing ever and I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, really, really good. So here we go. We start off with one of the worst covers I've ever heard. And believe me, I've heard a few. It was at the top of the UK charts. It was Westlife destroying Billy Joel's classic Uptown Girl. I understand you're a big Westlife fan, Mark. (laughs) Um, I, I can't deny this. And actually, I thought that was a really good oh, cover. So we're going to have fight, to agree fight, to disagree fight, fight. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's move on rapidly. And in the US, it was Crazy Town with Butterfly. And top of the Australian album charts was Dido with Every Song Sounds the Same. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, I mean no angel. Oh my God, I'm with you on that. <laughs> I'm with you with the Dido. I'm sure there's some real diehard fans out there, but I just don't understand why, do you? In the news this month, the Hints Ribeiro disaster in northern Portugal saw a bridge collapse, killing up to 70 people. At just 15 years and nine months old, American swimming legend Michael Phelps broke the 200 metres butterfly world record at the US World Championship Trials. And I can't really take the mickey out of Dido. Glenn Hughes, the biker from the village people, died of cancer at 50. I once saw the village people live in London. Oh my goodness. I bet that was a show though. I bet that was incredible. 
<laughs> it was it was amazing. And I remember going on the on the tube to Wembley, and the carriage was full of people dressed in the incredible um, the Indian headdress. Yeah. <laughs> And then how, how weird as well. I walked in and I knew somebody there and this guy approached me. It was a village people supporting another band I dare not mention. And he said, all right, mate, do you want to buy any ease? Like, <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> anyway, we move on. This month saw Donald Campbell's body be recovered from Lake Coniston, 34 years after he died in an attempt to break the land water speed record. And in UK true crime news, 18-year-old Claire Marsh became the youngest woman in Britain to be convicted of rape after pinning down a woman who was raped by a pair of teenagers in West London. She was sentenced to seven years in prison, while her accomplices, aged 15 and 18, were jailed for five years. So, did you guess the month and year, Mark and Bethan? I think you know the month and year. I certainly did. I can see it written down here, so... (laughs) Do you know, I haven't... I've purposefully not scrolled down so that I can try and guess... Oh, do you know what? I don't have any proper idea. I'm trying to work out Michael Phelps and how old he is because you said 15 years old. So I'm going to guess something like 2002. But I'm always so wrong when I listen to your show. So I feel like you're going to say no, it was like 93 or something ridiculous. It was March 2001. So not bad at all, Bethan. Oh, not too far off. God, isn't that crazy? 2001 feels like not that long ago. And then you realise just how long ago that was. I know, I look back, I was in my early 50s then. It's amazing, isn't it? Our time just races away. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's get on to today's story. 30-year-old Philip Noakes was a a big unit. He was someone who could handle himself in the criminal underworld of Salford near Manchester. It's an environment where you have to be tough and always on your guard to survive. But due to the life he led, when he went missing at the end of 2002, his family were worried. His mum, Margaret, was the last person to see him as he left their home at 5.30pm on Saturday, November 1st, 2003. She reported him missing soon after and his bike was found shortly after this on the other side of the M60 motorway. Margaret said, Philip was totally devoted to his two daughters. I knew something serious must have happened for him not to be in touch with his family. And it was a dog walker. Yep. Again, always standard. (laughs) It's always the dog walker, isn't it? Who found Philip's body just after Christmas 2003 when he'd been missing for two months. He'd been killed by a single shotgun blast to his chest and then stripped of his clothes and stabbed repeatedly before being buried in a shallow grave in Worsley Woods near his home in Salford. Jeez, that is a lot of, that's quite overkill, isn't it? To then also stab him repeatedly it is and and officers straight away thought that this was a a gang related killing because even the way he was stripped it was to destroy they presumed the evidence so it it sounded very much like a professional hit Mm. and the people that find the body I, i talk about this on my podcast i'm sure you do too it's just so horrendous and when they found philip it was a terrible sight for them to see the body was in fact recovered by officers who'd been hardened to the horrors that some humans choose to inflict on each other. They'd worked in Bosnia and Kosovo. Do you know what? I know we do make a joke about, you know, it's always a dog walk and that sort of thing. But when I go running on my own, I always do, I do always think how horrific it would be to be, you're, you're there, just you and your dog. And then you yes. come across something and, and what do you do? And 
those sights and the smells and the sounds and everything at that moment in time must just stay with you forever. Yeah, I fully agree. And I'm I'm sure most people do what you or I may do is if you see something, you try and tell yourself you hadn't seen it, wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. I I always think of the, um, and I think she was a dog walker, but the woman in the Stephen Port case who discovered, I think she discovered all of the bodies that, well, certainly at least two, two of them, I think that had been um, dumped by Stephen Port in that graveyard. And, you know, it didn't happen just once to her, it happened twice. And I, I always really feel for her to find herself in that situation, not once, but twice. It's just tragic. You'd be dreading the next time you have to go out. You get the dog's lead out and you'd be thinking, should I just walk a different route or... Yeah. You would. And then I think it's about people that kill someone as well. If it was me, I know what I'm like. As I fall asleep at night, it would be there in my mind. And it'll be there in the morning as well. The, as soon as I woke up, would you be the same? One hundred percent. Yeah, it's never gonna, it's never gonna leave you. But these people are—they're not like you and I. They're—that's why we do the podcast, really, to try and understand human behaviour. But these people are able to just shut those things out and and pretend it didn't happen. But then this is why I always feel so awful when a train driver, for example, or a lorry driver gets caught up in in a situation that's out of their control because. Yeah, they must, as they're falling asleep, see the face of... For example, we, we covered the case of the twins. The um, I can't remember their names. I knew you'd mention them. Yeah, I can't remember. And they ran out oh, into yeah. the middle of the yeah. M4, or a motorway. But they ran out into the middle of the road, and one of them was hit. And it's just... Or well, Adam, you know, your case recently with the train hitting the Land Rover. I know that's not hitting a person, but the... I don't know, just like when people are, are caught up in something that they... Were, you know they haven't even expected that to happen it, at least I suppose if it's the the person has gone out to murder it's a bit different they've chosen that but oh yeah I just can't imagine it I, I was in your neck of the woods um, um in West Country I was at Bath Station about three years ago I was on the way to a job interview funnily enough and somebody I heard shouting on the other side of the track as a as an express train was approaching and somebody had climbed on the track and I just went into a shop and just thought oh my mm. goodness what is happening this can't really be happening and luckily, the really brave station person just pulled them from the track. Apparently, it was just seconds wow. to go. It was just oh, just horrendous, utterly horrendous. But if you say if it had happened, the poor train driver and the people on the platform to witness yeah. that, you just wouldn't forget yeah. it. Couldn't forget it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's go back to the story. So after his body had been found, his mum, Margaret, said, When we got the news that they'd found my son, we couldn't believe it. Someone knows what happened to Philip. And I would ask them to speak to the police. Whoever hurt my son may have told a friend or a relative. Philip was addicted to drugs and detectives were unsure whether his death had been related to the drugs trade. They were also keeping an open mind about whether he was killed in the woods or whether his body was taken there and buried later. But as I said before, really they were pretty convinced this was a gangland type execution with the meticulous burial and the way he'd been killed. And a witness had seen another feared underworld figure with Philip Noakes on the day he disappeared. This man was a Scot, Stephen McColl. Originally from Glasgow, he was known to have carried out a string of armed robberies. He'd been spotted with Philip, who'd been on his pushbike, and another man, 23-year-old Daniel Henson, on the day that Philip disappeared. Daniel was also known to detectives as a close associate of McCall and someone they suspected of working with him on a series of armed robberies. 
they believed that the two men had enticed Philip to join them by telling them they were planning a burglary and they wanted to cut him in. Detectives checked the phone records of both men and discovered that on the day that Philip was murdered, McColl and Henson spoke frequently on the phone. And the day after Philip went missing, Henson took the night coach from Manchester to Glasgow, but he kept in close contact with McColl throughout this time. And McColl also headed to Scotland, but he didn't travel with Henson, which seemed odd. You know what seems odd to me, Mark and Bethan, sometimes is how some of these hardened criminals like we're talking about here don't appreciate the use of their phone records are going to be looked at. Yeah, there's some really, really stupid criminals, aren't there, where they just don't think about just the simple things, the real basics. Yeah, completely agree. I um I can't remember the names, but there was um there was a case in Greece last year where a husband had murdered his, his wife, I think she was nineteen, and she was a British citizen. She'd been I think she'd been born in, in Britain and then moved to Greece uh, at the age of two. And um yeah, like her, her husband who who was since been found guilty of well, I think it's still kind of um they're determining exactly his culpability, but he's admitted everything. And um she died, I think, at say um four in the morning. He then said he'd been tied up, it was all part of a a kidnap and um and robbery and then it showed his phone uh activity was continuing after he'd said he'd been tied up and he just had no concept of of how a phone will record your movements um no concept at all it's just ridiculous oh my god i love that well they just left me with my phone while i was tied up so i could play yeah and then i moved moved, moved around the whole house yeah (laughs) oh honestly this is the problem though and but it is a good thing because it means that we can catch these criminals but the case that that we I know that we've covered on both shows, Andrew Scanlon, mm. you know, without yeah. the phone records and stuff, it was just someone blabbing and being an idiot talking. Months later, having a bit of a natter and a bit of a brag that got them caught. Without that, then they potentially wouldn't have had anything, as they were trying to be forensically aware and they were trying to think about how they could use phone records to their sort of to the to their advantage. And then actually it was just someone blabbing, whereas here, yeah, I mean, what idiots. And also getting trains, there's going to be a lot of CCTV. I mean, I know it's 2001, but there still would have been records of who's, you know, people getting on the platform and stuff. And and, and I get it more when it's the story that Mark spoke about, the the guy in Greece, because it it sounds like it wasn't wasn't premeditated. But these guys that we're talking about today, these these are professional criminals. And to not be aware of the basics of your trade, I suppose, mm-hmm. I think, excuse the, uh, <laughs> the expression, it's criminal, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it is, 100%. <laughs> okay, so let's move on. Let's go back to the story. Greater Manchester police were very familiar with Stephen McColl. After all, he was one of their informants he informed to the police force. Surely he wouldn't have carried out a murder whilst informing on others, including, ironically, Philip Noakes. McColl told them all about what rival criminals were doing whilst carrying on with his own career as an armed robber. The Daily Record quotes Scottish sources as being incredulous when they learned that Boom Boom McColl, as he's known, was an informant for Greater Manchester Police. I quote, A source said that Boom Boom offered his services as an informant to several Scottish police forces but was turned down because he was too dangerous. Yesterday, one top Scottish detective said it was inconceivable that McColl would have been recruited 
by any force in Scotland. And as well as his armed robberies and informing duties, incredibly, McColl was also working part-time as an undertaker. Can you believe that an undertaker? I mean, as we've heard, he was interested in death, but not from an undertaking point of view. That is crazy. And he's a busy lad, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, he's got some time, hasn't he? This is time well. Did he use this then to his advantage with potentially disposing of evidence or anything, do you know? Or is it just he just also fancied a little bit of a career change? No, he did. And the, the, the reason it, it came up, the reason he became this undertaker in his spare time, according to the authorities, he was unemployed. And in 2003, he was asked by a back-to-work scheme what he wanted to do with his career. And he told them he'd always fancied working as a funeral director. And so he got a job doing just this. But I think it's fair to say that McCall, he didn't have the special set of skills needed for the job. And one man who used to work with him claimed to the Manchester Evening News that McCall subjected him to a violent campaign of intimidation. He explained how firebombs were thrown at his house, his tyres were slashed, his car windows were smashed, and both he and his wider family were targeted with violence. When McCall, you didn't want to cross him in any way, shape or form. Violence came naturally to him. While this was happening, the man went to Greater Manchester Police, who did nothing about it. And you can argue, maybe it's because he was working for them, they didn't want to get involved, but it just seems very strange to me, doesn't it, yeah? I think the the police forces work in such peculiar ways, and I think there's probably a lot we're not privy to, and yeah, I think they have a huge amount of informants working for them on a, an informal basis. And they're paid in, in lots of different ways, whether I suppose that's cash or paid in kind effectively, and a blind eye is turned occasionally. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that is the case, for the greater good, I, I guess. I know that you, like me, are big supporters of our police force. Um, most of our police people um, do a fantastic job in very difficult circumstances. But Greater Manchester Police, and um, Bethan, I know with your your book on Christopher Halliwell, I know you uh you saw some of the failings of Greater Manchester Police, didn't you? Yeah, and there it's a a name of a police force that comes up reasonably often within true crime sort of retellings and books, and it's it is sad because you you don't want to tar everyone with the same brush, but sometimes you kind of just think maybe they need to have a bit of a reform of the procedures in place or the way that they investigate things and potentially turn in a blind eye to certain things because it doesn't fit what they're trying to do at that moment in time. It's just very, very frustrating. And it must be really frustrating for the vast, vast majority of police officers who do do such a great job. Stephen McCall had two nicknames. I struggle with some of these criminals having nicknames, but... (laughs) Whatever, he had two nicknames. The first one was rather sinister. He was known as Boom Boom due to his fearsome reputation as a man with a gun who could be hired. And the second, Magoo, was due to his surname and his poor eyesight and it likened him to the cartoon character Mr Magoo that I'm not sure I'd have said this to his face, would you? No, absolutely not. And when you initially called him Boom Boom, um, I, I just thought that that was really innocent, but of course, yeah, it's it's going to be to do with um, firing a gun, so that's really disturbing, but no, this is a guy you would not want to uh, mess with and, and even attempt to have any sort of banter with, because we know what these people are like, they can just flip on, uh, on, on the kind of uh, flip of a coin and their personality has completely changed. 
and they're out to get you. So yeah, you've got to tread incredibly carefully. I definitely, when you said boom boom, was thinking of the Venga Boys song. And I mean, that's not going to be appropriate to sing to him, is it? <laughs> no, God no. Do not want him in your room, Beth. Oh. <laughs> you don't want to take him to Ibiza either, do you? <laughs> no. We don't want to get too far ahead of us, but he won't be going to Ibiza for a long, long time. Can you imagine how it must have been for senior officers at Greater Manchester Police? They must have had that horrible sinking feeling as McColl became the prime suspect for the murder of Philip Noakes. Just imagine it, one of your top informants is now a suspect for such a high-profile murder. Oh, and you're, you're going to have to explain this to your superiors and to the press and to the public. Oh, it's, it's, just, it's just some of those officers, it must have been their worst nightmare come true. But if you're dealing with guys like with McColl, I suppose you know it's a, it's a risk, but all the same, imagine that feeling when, it's, when it suddenly hits you he's likely to have killed Philip Noakes. Just a nightmare. But it wasn't just that. There were two other cases for which McColl was a prime suspect. The first was the murder near Glasgow of a man called Ralph Sprott, who was a fireman who was into kickboxing. He ran a door security firm. It was New Year's Day in 1997 when Ralph left home for work at the local fire station when a man shot him in the street. It was a targeted attack. The killer was on a motorbike and witnesses reported his presence in the area for three days, seemingly waiting for an opportunity to shoot him. On the morning of Ralph's death, the man had been waiting at a bus stop wearing a hooded top. And as Ralph passed him, the man started calmly walking behind him before shooting him in the back of the head. He then made his escape on a motorbike at high speed. Two men faced trial for ordering the assassination, which is what it was, of Ralph. And McCall's name was linked to the case in public when the two men stood trial for Ralph's murder. It was claimed in court that a former business partner of Ralph's had ordered the killing after Ralph had beaten him up badly, called him a grass for going to the police. But Ralph had been tried for the attempted murder of that man, but the jury had accepted that Ralph had acted in self-defence. And at the trial for Ralph's murder, it was alleged that the two men hired a hitman who was given £10,000 to kill Ralph. But at the trial, nobody was convicted. The jury retired for just 90 minutes and returned a verdict of not proven. Although McCall didn't actually face trial for this crime, he was initially suspected by detectives to be the hitman. But a girlfriend had insisted he was with her in Salford at the time of the murder, and this alibi was deemed to be a solid one. Nobody has ever been convicted of the murder of Ralph Sprott. These questions of alibis are sometimes interesting. I know in my book on Angus Sinclair, Sinclair was given so many alibis that sometimes were taken maybe too easily. Do you find this in some of the cases that you deal with? A hundred percent. Definitely when I was reading your book, the number of times I got frustrated by just, please just double check that they're talking, that they're not lying. Like it, it's just mad. And I get it. Like, my life is reasonably boring. And if you said to me, what did you do on this evening? I stayed in with my husband. Like, that's going to be my answer majority of the time. <laughs> but, oh, it just, it really frustrates me. It it should be the num- number one in the, the police handbook, basically, of 
how to investigate a murder that that is the number one rule isn't it you've got to you've got to check the facts that have been presented to you you can't just take that as read because quite often it's coming from people that are just so unreliable or who have been potentially threatened or are in abusive relationships with these horrible men like these terrible terrifying criminals i don't know whether these women are just saying what they have to say on the plus side for you mark i suppose if there's a crime in the uk it's relatively easy for you to have an alibi as you're on holiday 48 49 weeks a year by the sound of it this is true <laughs> yeah yeah if there's a crime in in any foreign country then you can pretty pretty much put my name to that most likely Very much yeah. so. but it wasn't just the murder of ralph sprott in 2001 there was mystery surrounding what happened to 22 year old michael doran he was presumed missing murdered Michael knew McColl and looked up to him. It's even suggested that he saw him as some sort of father figure. But Michael Doran's judgment was poor, and he too was working as an informant for Greater Manchester Police, where he told his handlers about some of the activities that McColl was involved with. And though we're not sure how, McColl knew this, and rightly suspected that Michael had betrayed him. To check, he went all Colleen Rooney, and told Michael some false information that he was planning to shoot another associate known to them both. And sure enough, soon after, McColl was arrested on suspicion of committing the crime, and on that very same day, Michael's fate was sealed. McColl invited Michael on holiday to Scotland, telling him there was some money both could make through some criminal activity, and Michael Doran went to Scotland, but was never seen again. Michael's mum, Anne, was realistic. She said of her son, Michael was no saint. He was in and out of trouble with the police. I did not condone any of this. He was a foolish young lad, but he was a friend to anyone who showed him kindness or who needed him. Detectives hoped to charge McCall with the murders of Michael Doran and Philip Noakes, but first they needed evidence. And with the body having been found, Philip's murder seemed to provide more opportunity to snare McCall. In particular, it was clear that whoever had killed Philip Noakes had some knowledge of anatomy. It wasn't an amateur. And as an undertaker, McColl had this. The killer had inserted the knife to a depth of three inches to the top inside part of Philip Noakes's thigh when he had just died or was about to die and was unable to move. When questioned about this, McColl said, I wouldn't know because it wasn't me. When probed further, he admitted he had an interest in the femoral artery and knew that if it was cut, then you would die within 10 to 20 seconds. He said, I know exactly where the femoral artery is. If I wanted to cut someone's femoral artery, I would cut it. I would not probe it. The detective suggested, but you didn't want him to die. You wanted him to suffer. This was personal. McCall responded, it really wasn't. I wouldn't do that to someone. The investigator asked, what you did was to blow him away. McColl replied, I never blew him away. I never stabbed anyone or put someone in a shallow grave. And there was further unusual behaviour from McColl just after Philip's murder. McColl attended a probation group session near Glasgow when it was noted that he made bizarre comments again about the femoral artery and the effects of gunshot wounds on the body. Asked about this by detectives, McColl said that he'd spoken about firearms making a mess, 
and not a shotgun. Detectives felt certain that McColl was responsible for the murders of Philip and Michael and felt they had enough evidence to charge Stephen McColl with murder. At his trial, 38-year-old Stephen McColl pleaded not guilty. He told Liverpool Crown Court, There is no body. Mick Doran wasn't killed. I never killed him. He also denied murdering Philip Noakes. His co-defendant, 23-year-old Daniel Henson, pleaded not guilty to murdering Philip Noakes. The prosecutor, Peter Wright, told how both victims had come to be seen as a liability by McColl. He told the jury, You may conclude on the evidence you hear that the elimination of these men by McColl and Henson was strictly business. Michael Doran never returned. His body has never been found. He simply disappeared off the face of the earth. He continued that Doran had began to act oddly after becoming a police informant, which made him a liability to McColl, and so in March 2001, the two men drove to Scotland, but Doran didn't return. And Philip Noakes, he too disappeared after crossing McColl. But at the end of the long and complex trial, it lasted almost two months, the jury found McColl guilty of both murders, and his able Lieutenant Henson guilty of murdering Philip Noakes. Sentencing McColl, the judge told him, life in this case means life, and you will never be considered for parole. After the trial, Michael Doran's mum, Anne, said, Michael was no saint, but he was my only son, and I would forgive him everything to have him back here with us. We are a small family. There can be no closure until he is found. What the jury members didn't know is that McColl and Henson were already serving a long time in jail after being convicted of armed robbery. They had been convicted in the February of this year of a string of violent robberies on pubs and shops and for this received sentences of 15 and 12 years respectively. McColl was given six years for his part in a robbery in Renfrewshire in a pub in 2004 where he was believed to have got away with £15,000. He was given a further nine-year sentence after admitting six violent robberies south of the border in northwest England. Okay, Mark and Bethan, so we come to the inevitable inquiries that we hear about so much on these podcasts, don't we? I roll moment because um, so often, as you all see, you all have seen Adam in, in your 200-odd episodes, and we've certainly seen that they're quite often a bit of a whitewash, which is just such a shame because it's just such a fantastic opportunity to learn and to put processes in place that can prevent this kind of thing happening again and to just improve these organisations. And all too often, it just doesn't achieve what, what it has been set out to achieve. So for me, I'm always quite sceptical with any sort of inquiry that, that, um, that we cover. And for me, the thing is accountability. You think about your work. If things go wrong, somebody's accountable. Somebody's always accountable. But it doesn't seem to be the case in these inquiries. So if we look here, so Greater Manchester Police, what did they say about their decision to keep using McCall as an informant? They said, we did continue to use him as an informant, despite the warning given to us by police in Scotland. The balance taken at the time was that the potential information McCall could provide outweighed the dangers of his reliability. In this instance, we got it wrong. Policing was never perfect. Okay, fair enough. But let's look at the Independent Police Complaints Commission, who investigated whether the police force was negligent in its handling 
of what is known as covert human intelligence sources. It seems pretty apparent to me that they were negligent. But as you know, these public authorities love an inquiry. As I just said to Mark, no one ever seems to take responsibility. And surprise, surprise, here the inquiry found failings in the system and the actions of four officers, but no action was taken against them. Instead, they were given advice on future conduct. The only kind of good thing is that in the court of public opinion, these these reviews are then put in the press and people talk about it. So there is a slight benefit that the police forces potentially will continue to to work a bit harder and a bit smarter around things because they know that they potentially could then be pulled up in the media and pulled up on social media. But it doesn't specifically answer the question of that, that individual who did something. Yeah, we've seen that numerous times in cases we've covered and we just see that they can act with impunity in, in these organisations and it is just incredibly frustrating for for us and, and all of our listeners as well. I know it is because we talk about it on, on the Facebook group and on Patreon. Um, yeah, it's um, it's very bothersome. We're not saying for a second it's not a very difficult job. It's complex. There's lots of things you need to balance. But we all mess up in our jobs, don't we? And that's fine. I've got no problem with people messing up in their jobs. But if you mess up to such an extent, you've got to be held accountable. Okay, so that's the end of today's case. So um, what do we make of what we've heard today? The the thing that always strikes me is when we talk about people, I hate the expression criminal underworld. When we discuss these people who who are professional criminals to some, some extent or another, some have no sympathy when they get killed. There's very much the view that if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. But I don't know about you guys, I'm, I'm not sure I agree because people get dragged into this lifestyle, especially as we've heard today, Philip and Michael both had drug addictions and as, as we know, a drug addiction, can, it can just result in so many poor decisions, so much poor behaviour to get the money that you think you need. What's your view? Do you do you go for this live by the sword, die by the sword ideal? I do think, though, my only thing that I would disagree with you there slightly is someone like Boom Boom. That's how, what I'm going to call him now. It's my little nickname for him. He has made full-on choices and decisions. He didn't come into this from this drug-addicted, vulnerable state. And so whilst I wouldn't say that he would have deserved to have been shot... I'd have a lot less sympathy for him than someone like Philip or Michael. I, th- I think we always use it as context. So um, we, we just did a, a Patreon bonus episode, uh, which was a, essentially a, a gangland killing. And, you know, that's another one of those terms like criminal underworld that you hate using, but, but it is used and it is what it is. And, and that was a professional hit, really, on uh, uh, somebody who was very uh, involved in, in the supply chain of drugs and importing them uh, across the world. So... You kind of you look at it as context that the, these people know that there are risks in in what they're involved in, and uh, yeah, it's always a potential outcome that their their life is going to come to an end in a brutal way, as happened in in that episode that we covered. He was he was shot dead on Christmas Eve in front of his two year old son, who was you know wailing in deranged agony at what he just witnessed. So. It just doesn't make it right, though, and, and we, we tried to get that point across, I remember, in that episode, and, and we always do. It is context, but it absolutely doesn't mean that that individual deserved to die. Um, so I don't believe in that live by the sword, die by the sword. And I think when you talk about drug addiction, 
yeah, we we talk a, a lot about sex sex workers on our show, um, who who sadly are quite often a victim of crime, and um, yeah, we, we always have a, a very sympathetic approach. Philip notes, you know, he's only thirty when he died. You know, two daughters completely devoted to them, and so the daughters have lost their dad, and the daughters are going to read about it and going forward. The mums and the wider family, and though boom boom. Um, McCall is now in prison for life. He's not ever coming out. The ramifications of what we've heard about today will last generations. That's what always hits me with murder. It lasts yeah. generations. It's not just a, a, a one-off event. It's it's so vast, isn't it? Like families are families. It's always going to be affecting them. This is why I think sometimes true crime podcasts are actually really good because they actually tell the stories. Because if you just read the the headline on the news or the paper. You just see like a, a statistic, don't you? And you might read it for 30 seconds. But I think it's just about that extra context for me. It just makes it real, every single person. Yeah, it's, it's a real person, isn't it? It's not just another story, another statistic. Definitely, yeah. I, I do like to say things that are so obvious that you can't disagree with me, by the way. <laughs> okay, so thank you everyone for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. And a huge thank you to Mark and Bethan for joining me today. Tell me, guys, where can people find your podcast and find you online? We're everywhere. We're like a, I don't know, I was going to say like a nasty rash. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Oh, gross. Uh, You can find us, you can find us, uh, you can find the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we're seeing Red, a true crime podcast. And uh, we're on, I would say all of the social medias, but we're not. We're just on uh, Instagram and Facebook. So uh, do give us a follow there as well. But yeah, thank you so much for having us along, Adam. It's um, It's been such a treat to have an episode of your show, which I've listened to for years, relayed to me uh, in real time by uh, the host with the most. So um, oh. thank you so much for having us along. <laughs> he is a legend, a living legend. The legend himself, definitely. And obviously you're going to be on our show, so we release on a Wednesday. So if anybody wants to come and listen to you coming on to our show this week, they can come and find us wherever they listen to the show and we'll release on a Wednesday. And just to whet people's appetites, what story are we covering on Wednesday? We are covering the, uh, well, the initial, I'll just say the disappearance of Gabby Petito, who uh, was a travel vlogger and influencer. Uh, in the US and um, she disappeared and uh, there were tragic circumstances surrounding her disappearance so I have been following this case so interested so I'm really interested to hear your take on this Mark it's going to be really good yeah come join us and and hear all three of us talking about this on on Wednesday great stuff okay well thanks again guys so um, to discuss this show or any aspect of the UK true crime please head to the Facebook group where there are now almost 80,000 of us discussing all things UK true crime 24-7. And as I said before, it's many things, but it's never dull. And to keep this podcast coming every week, as if you would ever want it to end, join my community at patreon.com slash UK true crime. Remember, with every annual subscription, I will send you a signed copy of my book on Scottish serial killer Angus Sinclair. You know it makes sense. That is a good that is a good gift. It's a brilliant book. It's a great book, isn't it? <laughs> if I do say so myself. 
Mark, this Mark, is where you're supposed to say I'm yes. I'm sorry. I, I was, I, I was honestly, I was looking at, I was looking at something. Mark. Um, it, it, of course, it is. It's fun and it's a fantastic offer, and it's a signed copy by Adam. I mean, come on, he doesn't. Mark's want too busy reading the Mail Online. We know <laughs> what standard, you do, Mark, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> okay, so as we come to a close, whatever you're up to this week, please do try to enjoy it. And as usual, despite all the others, in fact, rather than me say it. Would one of you two like to sign off in the normal way? I really oh, want I, I to. Want this. Can we do it together, Mark? Sure we'll do it together. Okay, three, two, one. Stay classy. Please stay classy. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Cheerio.